We are in, in the Gospel of John. We've been going through the, the scene of the crucifixion. Uh, seeing in this last, the last half of John's Gospel is really detailing the, the, the last 12, 24 hours of Jesus' life. The first 12 chapters of John's Gospel details his ministry. And then the last, second half of the Gospel, the last 12 chapters, just details the last 24 hours of his life. Last Supper, last training, last training for his disciples, the arrest in the garden, the interrogation before the chief priest, the trial before Pontius Pilate, taking off to be crucified. Last week we left off where Jesus in his last breath said, I thirst. Uh, They gave him some wine, he cleared his throat, and he yelled out as a king, it is finished. And so now we're going to pick the story up from that point where the body of the Lord Jesus is now lying or dead on the cross. And we're going to see what happens next. So I ask you to please stand one last time. Uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we believe that when we read the Word, God is speaking to us. So this is out of respect for the speaker who is God. I'm just the reader. This is the inerrant word of God, John chapter 19, verse 31 through 42. And since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so that he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, which is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, They laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, for the beauty and the depth of it. Lord, we thank you for what it tells us about the foundational reality of the universe and what our hope lies in. Lord, we pray that you would help us to always be centered on the centrality of the cross of Jesus. Lord, so that out of that, fruit may come from us. Lord, but help us not... Mistake the fruit for the center. Help us not mistake 
the implications for the cross. Lord, help us to clearly see who you are, what you have done, so that we might not be afraid, so that we might not be ashamed, so that we might be close with you and feel you and be with you and receive your power, Lord Jesus. Father, teach us by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There's a couple, a couple weeks ago, Thomas, our, our, our intern, we were joking around about, <laughs> about how we felt, sometimes how we felt before the service started. And he sent me this, this video from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg's a preacher on the radio. And it, uh, it was, uh, Alistair Begg was telling this story about how he is on vacation and he got to go to a church in California, of course. And he was excited because he didn't have to do anything. As a minister, when you get to go to another church, it's a good day. You just have to sit there. You don't have to do nothing. You just get to worship. No pressure. And so he was excited about that. He said he, so he shows up to the church super professional. They have a timer on the background that's clicking down the seconds, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Boom, right on the one. The band kicks in. He's all, he's all I'm ready. You know, I'm waiting for John, or David Letterman to come out. And, uh, and he says, and the guy, the guy, the worship leader comes out. And the first question out of his mouth is, how are you feeling this morning? <laughs> how do you feel? <laughs> He's like, man, don't ask me that question. <laughs> don't ask me that question. Don't ask me how I feel. If I honestly answered, you would wonder whether or not I was a Christian at all. I mean, it's early morning, or it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the end of the weekend. I'm, I'm barely ambulatory right now. I can't hardly move. Uh, don't ask me how I feel. I haven't had any coffee you want me to put my hands up in the air and, and, and start singing to Jesus? I just want to lift my hands before you, tell you all about how I love you. Now? It's like I just got a fight with my wife on the way here. I just barely strangled my kids trying to get them in the car seats. I kicked my dog. I don't even have a dog. <laughs> I spilled my coffee. I don't got nothing. I almost got in a fight for a parking space outside. <sighs> And you want to know how I feel? I'll tell you how I feel. In his great Irish accent, he's all, I feel like crap. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's the point? The point is, here's the point. He's like, no, before you ask me how I feel, you have to ask me, you have to tell me, what do you know? What do you know about God to be true? What do you know? Before you ask me how I feel which isn't going to be good, first you have to remind me of the eternal, unshakable divine truth about who God is, about what he's done, about who Jesus is. And then, as these eternal, unshakable divine truths start to cascade over me like rivers of living water, then I can start to talk about how I feel about those things, how I feel safe, how I feel secure, how I feel love, how I feel accepted in the beloved, not based on who I am or what I've done, but based on that eternal rock of knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. 
then I can start talking about how I feel. And then, and only then, can I know that everything's going to be all right. Amen? One of the tragedies in the church today is that we have, we assume the gospel and we run to other things thinking that that's, where, that's the important stuff. We assume the gospel of the cross. We say, yes, Jesus died to pay for my sins. That's the introduction. And now let's move over here to the important stuff, to whatever it is. You know, something's good, something's bad. And we forget the centrality of the cross, which is the only foundation for us to be secure, for us to be safe, for us to be loved, for us to be accepted. And because of that... Um, We have a tendency to end up in fear and anxiety as we try to make things of the world our source of security instead of the centrality of the cross and the death of Christ and what it means for us. And so we're in this passage talking, we're in the crucifixion passage. That is the central point of this passage and the entire Bible. And so the big idea today what we want to be reminded of, what we constantly need to be reminded of is this simple truth. That is that in the death of Christ, we find our life and freedom. In the death of Christ, we find our life and our freedom. Now let's look at that at one little piece at a time. First, in the death of Christ. Look at verse 31 and 33. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. You know, the big point of this first section of this passage is to simply say this, that Jesus really died. Jesus actually suffered death and was buried. There's reasons for that in the, in the time that John was writing it. There was different elements in the church. Some people were trying to say that Jesus wasn't really a man. He did just appeared to be a man and so that his death on the cross was really just the appearance of a death and not a real death. Other people Later, we try, tried to make the argument that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just passed out. <laughs> People bought that, actually bought that for, for 100 years or so, that Jesus just passed out. They pulled him off the cross. The Jesus, Jesus underwent Roman scourging, was nailed to a cross, uh, and then and the Roman soldiers, under penalty of death, examined his body, found out he was dead, and then he put him, in, put him in his tomb, and then later he just woke up. What happened? Rolled the stone out of the way, walked back to the disciples' house, and said, hey man, get me out of here. People bought that story. But the whole point of this is to, is to show us, the, really, the efficiency of the Roman death squads. These guys, that's what they did. That's all they did all day long is take people and crucify them. And they were experts at what they did. They killed people and they killed them good. 
There was no way that Jesus came off of that cross alive. There was no other explanation that he was actually did die for us. But the second, second point John's trying to bring in here more subtly is the fact that on the cross, God really died. In that, in the, one of those, one of these, uh, one of those prophecies that that John quotes at the end, uh, where he says, he says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. In in the Hebrew manuscripts, there's a, it's a bit fuller. It says, and I will I will pour out on the house of David, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, in context, who's the me? Yahweh, God. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, then they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Paul alludes to this too in Acts 20, 28, when he talks, talking to the elders of Ephesus, saying that you are entrusted with the care for the church of God, which he, God, has obtained by his blood, the blood of God. I mean, that, it's hard for us to comprehend how that happened, but if the incarnation means anything, it means that God was incarnate as a man experiencing all of those things that we experience even to the point of death, the awful death upon a cross. And what that tells tells us is, you know, we know that, that the apostles, the apostolic writers, give us all kinds of assurances, that, and especially in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest who has undergone all the temptation that we have undergone, all the suffering that we could have undergone, that he is able to not just sympathize with us, but empathize with us in all of our stress, in all of our pain. And this means that the scariest thing that could ever happen to us as we approach death uh, as the looming possibility of death is ever before us, coloring everything that we do with the fear of it as we look forward to it, whether you want to admit that to be true or not. Uh, as you get older, it's harder to not admit that to be true. What that means is that God has gone through that first for us and can empathize with us in all of our fear and suffering that comes out of that. And I think, you know, that gives, us, that gives us even more assurance of those, those little things. When we talk about can Jesus empathize with us in our suffering of day-to-day life? Can Jesus empathize with us? Does he really empathize with us in the little awful things that happen in life, in the little tragedies, in the little disappointments, in the big disappointments? If we know that he can empathize with us in the scariest, most awful thing that we are going to have to go through, we can know that he is with us and empathizes with us in all the little things in life too. And the other big thing that John wants to bring out in this first section is that Jesus, who is God, died according to the scripture. He, here, he, you know, as we've been going through this crucifixion narrative, we've been you know, talking every time he says, this is to fulfill this, this is to fulfill that. We've been kind of laying these out. In this one, he gives two big ones in this passage. Not one of his bones will be broken, leading us, our minds back to the whole Passover ritual uh, that we saw so prominent in the trial before Pilate that as Jesus 
was being inspected and slaughtered by the chief priests of Israel at the exact same time. The priests of Israel were next door in the courtyard of the temple inspecting and slaughtering the Passover lambs. No accident there. Yet the blood of the Passover lamb is what causes God to pass over us, which saves us from the wrath of God. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All these Passover metaphors are just meeting together here at the cross along with hundreds of other streams of prophecy. He also says, the other one is uh, that they will look upon me whom they have pierced, which we just read. But I was reading this, so those are two big prophecies that he brings out here, but I was reading through this just thinking to myself, I was going to do this last week, but we didn't have time. And I was thinking, how many, just in this two chapters of John, as we've been going through this, how many prophecies have, how many streams of prophecies have all met here in this one little section of Scripture? And so we can't like go into all of them in detail, but I just want to run out 21 prophecies converging in just these two chapters And this is just me going through it off the top of my head, stuff that I recognize. There's probably more than this if we were to go to study it more. But here's basic list. Number one, Jesus, as a Jew, would be crucified. His death would be by crucifixion, by Roman hands, not stoning to death. That Jesus would be descended to the king of David. That Jesus would protect all of his people, losing not one. That he would be rejected by the religious elite and by the people. That he would die with the wicked by the thieves on either side of him, that his clothing would be divided by lots, that he would be mocked by the political powers, that he would say, I thirst for us as our sacrifice. He would take on our thirst as he hung on the cross for us. He would be offered sour wine by his enemies in death, that he would be hung on a tree, which meant he was cursed of God, taking the curse of God upon himself for us, that none of his bones would be broken, that he'd be protected by God from defilement by the wicked, that he would be pierced, opening a fountain of life and forgiveness for his people, that he would be buried with the rich. How do you do that? How are you, how do you, how are you with the wicked in your death, buried with the rich? We're going to find out today. He was proclaimed as the Davidic king in his death. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover ritual. Jesus is the fulfillment of the true exodus, our slavery out of sin and death. Jesus is the true Moses, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah who dies for his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the office of the high priest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the animal sacrificial system. We could probably go on and on and on. But what does that tell you? What are the chances that one man could, by accident, fulfill all of those things. And, and the answer is, without going into all the details, less than zero. There's no way one man could have done those things, manipulated those things, made those things come to pass had it not been foretold by God. And what that tells us is that this, what is happening here, is absolutely true, that it is divine revelation that we can count on. What good is it counting on things? What good is it having hope in something if you're like 50% on it? Right? Anybody here? You mean hoping in 50%? Like, those aren't good odds, you know? Well, what God wanted us to know is that it's 100. It's 100%. 100% we can trust that what he's telling us is true. And so what does he tell us? Point two, he tells us that in the death of Jesus, we find life. In the death of Jesus, 
we find life. Look at verses 34 and 35. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Ever seen the, the, the movie Passion of the Christ? When they do this scene, the Roman soldier, he grabs a spear, he comes up, he's, he's not too sure about what he's doing, and he goes up on the order of his commanding officer and he sticks Jesus in the side and this fountain of water comes pouring out of Jesus. Water and blood come pouring out of Jesus like a, like a fountain. He, he falls on his knees, wipes his eyes, fountain water still flowing on him. When I first watched that movie, I was like, well... I was like, all right, that's, that's kind of weird. What was that all about? <laughs> what was that all about? You know, because I had been told that this was just a proof, another proof that Jesus was dead. The Roman soldier pierced his heart, the periocardial sac burst, and therefore blood and water came out, proving that he was dead at the time of the stabbing. We know this to be medically true, right? And so I was like, man, Mel Gibson just kind of went over the top on that movie. But the reality is, it's really more accurate than... I was giving it credit. He is trying to portray something that John also is trying to portray through these scriptures. Is it, is it possible that the whole heart theory, people used to say he was stabbed in the heart and, and uh, there was a sack of water when you die, there's a sack of water in the heart and that's what caused it and it was just a show of death. That's pretty much, from my reading, has been disproven now. That's not really very, very possible. There's one other potential option why that could have happened naturally, but that's really not John is saying here. He's not saying, and they pierced his side. We all know the blood and water come out of the periocardial sac, and so therefore this is proof that he's dead. He doesn't say that. He says, he right there, he stops, and he makes a big deal out of the fact that he was the witness to this. Three times he says, this is true. I was a witness. It's true. The guy who says this, me, witnesses, it's true. This is absolutely true, and I'm telling you this because I want you to believe. And in fact, what it is, the way it's written grammatically, it's continue to believe or continue to be strengthened and grow in your faith. I want this to encourage you, is what he's saying. I want this to be foundational for you. I want this to be a basis a foundational basis of your faith. So what is it about the water? What, what is the big, what's the big deal, John? Here it is, first clue. Prophecy of Zechariah 12.10 that we just read, they will look upon me, upon him whom they have pierced. That prophecy finishes with this, and on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. So John's pointing to John. Zechariah ties in this piercing somehow with a fountain that cleanses from sin. Second clue. Water in the Gospel of John has been prominent from the very beginning. Wedding of Cana. Water's turned to wine. Wine is a symbol of the blood of Christ, the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Woman at the well. She goes to the well, he says, I'll give you living water instead of this water, that you will never be thirsty again. The high point of the water theme in John is at the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus stands up at the middle of this high feast with all these prophetic and Old Testament symbolism coming together, and he stands up and says, at the high feast, if anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now what have we been learning about how John considers the glorification of Jesus? John considers the glorification of Jesus to begin at the crucifixion where Jesus is enthroned on the cross as king, where he is acting in powers, the king of the universe, bringing salvation to his people through this act of sacrificial love. But that passage that he read, when it says this, when it says, out of his heart will flow livers of riving water, in context, that's... His heart is the Messiah's heart. There's a secondary application where it's out of our heart. Once we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's true that we will become also, we can become rivers of living water to bring blessing and restoration to those around us. But the primary meaning of out of his heart will come rivers of living water. The his is the Messiah. And so what he's saying is, what he's saying when John quotes this, or Jesus says this, he's saying that rivers of living water will be flowing from the Messiah's heart and that water represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brings cleansing and brings life. Now here's the thing. Old Testament, Levitical, Jewish law, dead bodies defiled you. You touch a dead body, you were ceremonial unclean, and you were defiled. What John wants us to know is that Jesus is a whole different kind of dead body. One of the, Ray Brown, one of the best commentators on the book of John, says that. Jesus is a whole different kind of dead body. Jesus' death cleanses us. And John sees in this symbol of water and blood pouring out at the same time, a symbol or a sign from God that the blood of Christ has taken away our sin. We have been cleansed from it. It has been erased from the mind of God. He is no longer holding it against us and our guilt for it. The stress, the shame, the guilt, the thing that makes you want to run from God, all that has been erased in the mind of God and in its place has come the cleansing waters of the Holy Spirit bringing life to his people. Bringing life to his people. And that is the Christian hope. That is the foundation of our faith. That his shed blood has taken away our guilt and the water flowing from his heart is a symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as he has in death given us his life. And that can never change. That can never be taken away Nothing can wreck that. And so here's the, here's the bummer. When we, in the Christian, in the church, when we try to make Christianity about something else other than this, uh, it shortchanges all of that. And it, makes, it causes us to rely on things that don't have the power to answer eternal questions for us. And when we try to rely on things that aren't answering the eternal questions for us, the problem that we have, which is death, which is guilt, which is sin, those things, they don't have the power to pay off on that. We're writing theological checks that cannot cash our debts. A friend of mine sent me a a video last week, a, a pastor talking about 
You know, basically the, the message was you need power in your life for your relationships, for your finances, for your, uh, for your career, for all these earthly things. And the answer for that is the baptism is the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, let's all, we'll all pray. And then God is going to give you this power to put your life together. Now, look, on one hand, yeah, God wants to, blood. God does bless us in the little things in life. And it's it's beautiful when he comes through like that. Just today. <laughs> today. I'm not going to go into all the details, but there was just this little thing that God did. And it, was, uh, it was unmistakable that God just blessed me in this little way that took a bunch of pressure off me today. You know? Now, I'm in the middle of like preparing this sermon about these eternal truths that free our minds to, uh, and to worship God, to wor- the glory of God, and to, and to, to give us strength and peace in this age and God did this like little teeny thing that just made my life better today and I literally fell down on my knees and and cried and just thanked God and prayed. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So all that's true. He does that stuff, right? But it's in the midst of seeking him and it's in the midst of uh, it's in the midst of the knowledge of those grand things that he has done for us. Because listen, listen if God, say God like makes, gives me a prayer to pray almost out of thin air and, and, and he does that, but he hasn't taken away the problem of my sin and my guilt and the death that looms in front of me, that's nice. It's beautiful, it's loving, but at the end of the day, I still die in my sin. The thing that gives us strength, the thing that helps us to walk in the midst of the sorrow and the sadness of this age, the thing that gives you the power to get in a knockdown, drag out fight with your wife or your husband and come out of it on the other side with forgiveness and love is the fact that we have been forgiven, we have been loved, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and we can then take that wealth, that wealth, and hand it off. I have been given this, and I want to give some to you. And that creates chain reactions of beauty and life and peace. Not just to your wife, to your husband, but in this culture, in the stress points, in the divisions, in the hatred, that we all experience in life, to take that wealth of the cleansing blood and the water of the Holy Spirit poured upon us and walk out in the world and just and hand it off. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give you some. Because I got everything I could possibly ever, ever, ever need. I know where I'm going. I know who I belong to. And it's all good. And when we get that, when we get that, that's when some radical transformation and change can start happening in life, right? That's point three. Point three is in the death of Jesus, we find freedom. Look at verse 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 
about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, which is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb with which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now John has told us in chapter 12 that there were some, even among the rulers, that believed. In 12, 42, 43, he says, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. To come out as a follower of Jesus, to be kicked out of the synagogue meant game over. That was the social bond of all of life. For you to be excommunicated from the synagogue, from the temple, meant you would lose friends, you would lose family, you would lose business connections, your life would be completely changed. Uh, And so, John's telling us, there's guys, even uh, even in the religious ruling elite, that believe this, but they're afraid to come out. And here, in the death, after Jesus has died, we see these two of these guys have now come out, out of the woodwork. Joseph of Arimathea, from the other Gospels, we learn that he's, he's a wealthy man, he's affluent, he's a landowner. He owns this tomb that's in this garden. It's like, a, it's like gated tomb community in the northern section of Israel. This is like the wealthy place to get buried. Uh, he is uh, on the key is on the Sanhedrin ruling council. He is on the Senate of the Jewish nation. Powerful, affluent, wealthy, landowner. There's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a leading theologian, which meant that he would also be upwardly mobile, affluent member. He's a member of the Sanhedrin ruling class as well. And so these guys are, are, are players. These guys are wealthy, affluent, Jerusalem ruling elite. And it was all of Jesus' disciples who have been with him for three years are hiding out. John tells us these guys come out, come out and, and they request the body of Jesus from Pilate. The big, the big picture here is that Jesus is being given the burial ceremony of a Davidic king. The kings of Israel, including David's tomb, we know from Acts 2, were north of the city, that David's tomb was still known to them. The Davidic kings were, were buried in a garden, to, a garden tomb place to the north of the city. Uh, that, that 75 pounds of spices was an enormous amount of spices, not an average burial. That was burial rites of Davidic kings. And so John is bringing this, 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 this theme of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, to its close, as Jesus is afforded by these rich men the burial ceremony of a king rather than what should have happened to him, either being left on the cross to decompose or thrown into the valley of Gehenna and burned, which is what happened to most crucifixion victims. These men stepped in. What, David doesn't, what, what John doesn't say out loud, though, is what this must have cost them. For them to come out. First, they're Jewish men. It's about an hour before the Passover and they are personally handling a dead body. They have been ritually defiled. 
and are unclean and they, have, they are now unable to celebrate the Passover meal. And these are leading guys, leading theologians. Uh, they had duties guaranteed where they had to be in public places to celebrate the Passover meal. And they were now going to be absent and everybody was going to know why they were absent. Second thing is they have been outed. They have just publicly come out as disciples. And that probably means that they lost everything. Probably means they lost family, that they lost their prestige. Probably means that they lost business connections, that they lost wealth, that they lost community. Probably meant that they lost all kind of things that we tend to grab onto as our solution in life. Why? Why would they do that? These guys had it all. And they're willingly giving it up to do this. They did it because they got it. These guys fascinate me. I think these are the first two guys to totally get it. The disciples are running. Even with all of Jesus' instructions, they, don't, they still don't get it. They just think that he's been killed and that they are now being hunted. Even the women who have come, you know, that are coming to the tomb, they, as much as they love Jesus, they don't, still they don't understand it. But these guys are voluntarily giving up the Passover. Do you know why? Because they know that this is the last Passover. The Passover lamb has been slaughtered. The Passover lamb, the sacrifice has been made. The ritual doesn't mean nothing anymore. Once the fullness have come, they're putting all their chips on that. They know what this is. They've witnessed the crucifixion. They saw, I can just imagine them there, theologians just watching like a Rolodex, all these prophecies hitting and just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. And then finally they're watching the crucifixion. Jesus is pierced. The water flows out and I just, I wonder if the first they saw that, the first thought out of their mind was on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanliness. And it all came together. And they got it. And they walked away from everything they knew. And so they were free. Get it? <laughs> and we hang on to all this stuff. We hang on to the money, hang on to the sex, hang on to the prestige, hang on to the power because we think that that's what's going to make us safe. But does it? No. In the end, it fails. And so they were free from all that. They were free from the ritual. They knew the Passover had been completed, that Jesus was the Passover lamb, and all the types and shadows of the old Israeli religion were over. They were free from the ritual of trying to appease God by ceremony and action, and we are too. They were free from superstition, free from all the extra rules and regulations the Pharisees put on top of the law of God to make sure that they were absolutely keeping it so that they could earn their way to heaven, free from superstition because they knew that Jesus had paid for all of their sin and they were clean. And so are we.
They were free from guilt and shame because they knew that God had removed their sin as far as the east is from the west, that the sacrifice had been made, that the new covenant had come in, and that they were now, they didn't have to be guilty or ashamed before God. They could come into his presence with joy, and so can we. They were free from their pride. <laughs> free from pride that made them think that they had to have it all together and don't let anybody else know you don't. <laughs> they could just come down and be like truth. I am more desperately wicked than I ever thought I could possibly be. And at the same time, I am more cherished and valued and loved by the God of the universe than I ever heard, ever dared dream. Because he did this for me, for you, for us. And they were free from death. They knew that the Spirit had sealed them into eternal life. And they didn't have to worry about the trinkets of this world. I, can't, I just keep thinking of this scene in my mind. I was meditating on this all week about Joseph of Arimathea, all his gowns on, all his Pharisee gear, getting ready for the big show that night, Passover, whatever he was going to do. And his family there, his boss, Sanhedrin members, and he just puts it all down and starts walking away. Joseph, where are you going, man? Where are you going? And I can just imagine him just smiling, taking off his Pharisee gear, walking out the door, and walking away from everything, knowing that he was walking into a life of beauty and joy and peace, that would never end and could never be taken away. And the same is true for us. Amen? Oh Lord, our God, these are the things that give us hope. Not new cars, not new clothes, not our reputation among men, not our jobs, not our careers, not our education. not our ability to keep the law, not our ability to fool people into thinking that we're better than we are. The fact that you have cleansed us from our sin with the power of your blood and your spirit and that we belong to you, those are the things that give us a foundation of hope that cannot be shaken. And so, Lord, we thank you for this. We love you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.